Welcome back to the Apprentice One to One podcast. And again, this is one of the audio only podcasts. I'm your host, Mark Allison, and we're kind of building on the inspection and testing series that I've been putting together from people asking over on Instagram. And again, recording pre Monday Club. And um, yeah, we kind of gone through most of the dead tests. There is kind of a a little bit of a crossover with one of the remaining tests, and that's your earth electrode resistance testing. And um, you know there are parts of this where it would be essentially a dead test, but also also not. So if you look in guidance note three. There's three methods of measuring the resistance of an earth electrode, um, and method E1. They say it used a dedicated earth electrode tester, and um, that's looking for a falling potential on a, a three or four terminal type. Test method E2 uses a dedicated earth electrode tester that's stakeless or a probe type. And test method E3 uses an earth fault loop impedance tester. So, I mean, I don't know if you've seen these, but some of the multifunction testers that um, are out now, you can get them with stakes and kits where you can carry out earth electrode resistance testing. There are specialist earth electrode resistance test sets and equipment. You must remember that for safety reasons, um, you have to have the installation isolated from the supply. Um, and the reason for that is you have to disconnect the earthing conductor to carry out your earth electrode measurement. Um, and, and if it's the only earth electrode, <laughs> this can leave the entire installation unprotected against earth faults. Um, so you need to isolate the complete installation. So this disconnection ensures that your test current only goes through the earth electrode and not through parallel paths. That's why you need to ensure that you, you're disconnecting it. And that's why it's it's different um, with your, your PSC, for example, where you would not make that disconnection for the exact same reason, but for a, a different way around. But we'll get to that one. Um, so if we're talking about the E1 method, you need to carry it out when the ground conditions are at their least favorable. So it's when the, the soil would be dry or frozen, for example. And I had a bit of that with the measurement on my shed, actually, recently when we had that really cold weather. I was measuring a higher value of resistance than when it had all started to thaw away and the ground was a bit more clayey and uh, a bit more moisture in there. And there is um, there is an Annex C of IEC 60364-6 for further guidance. And that's what it states in Guidance Note 3. Um, and essentially for your E1 measurement you need to have two temporary spikes or electrodes um, and you would connect one um, of the earth electrodes would be connected to um, terminal C1 if you had a, an earth electrode test instrument and um, I think it's, a, a, it's an F or a P1 of a four terminal earth tester uh, to exclude the resistance of your test leads, you need to make sure that you either measure them and deduct them from the measurement or null the leads if the test set allows you to do so. Uh, but where it's an insignificant value, um, you know, you, you're not really going to need to worry about it too much. You need to think about your earth electrode resistance measurement. It's usually going to be in the multiple of ohms and your test leads are probably, you know, not, not of any significance to the overall value of measurement. But, you know, if you can, null the leads, factor it in. And if you look at the diagram in Guidance Note 3, essentially what you've got is your um, C1 would be connected to your earth electrode, and then you would have um, some stakes in the ground, and 
ideally speaking you would have them kind of 15 to 25 meters away from the earth electrode and then 15 to 25 meters away from the other spikes so you're kind of trying to put a good mass of earth between the the varying points and then you would um, have your p2 probe go on to one of the earth electrodes electrodes and your c2 probe go on to the other one the distance between the spikes is important you know if they're too close together the um, resistance areas that each one's kind of measuring they'll overlap and if you want reliable results you need to um, make sure that you're getting a good distance um, at least 10 times the maximum dimension of the electrode system so if you've got a three meter long rod you're going to need a 30 meter distance uh, you need to take three readings so firstly um, with the potential spike T2 so that's inserted midway between the electrode under test and the current spike T1 so that's your electrode in, in the middle so if you've got your um, earth electrode that's under, under test and you've got your two spikes one's at sort of 15-25 metres and the other 15-25 metres on from that so you're going for the middle one and then secondly with um, T2, so that's the middle one, moved to a position 10% um, of the overall electrode to current spike distance back towards the electrode under test. So you move it a little bit nearer. And then with T2, move 10% in the opposite direction. Um, so you know, you're getting those three readings. And then you compare the three readings, and a percentage deviation can be determined. So it says the way you do this, it's calculated by taking the average of the three readings, finding the maximum deviation of the readings from this average in ohms, and expre expressing this as a percentage of the uh, average. So the accuracy of the measurement using this uh, technique is typically 1.2 times the percentage deviation of the readings. So it's difficult, it's really difficult actually to achieve uh, an accuracy measurement of better than 2%. And it's, they say it's inadvisable to accept readings that may differ uh, by more than 5%. So you, know, you need to factor that into your calculations. Um, the other method, um, which is called E2, so this is using dedicated stakeless or clamp-based earth electrode testers. Uh, and it says here that a number of earth electrode resistance testers are available that utilize clamps and can carry out measurements without an earth electrode under test, having to be disconnected from the installation. And the use of two types is described in guidance note three on page uh, 62. And essentially what you've got is a very similar test process to the E1, but you do have a clamp on the um, earth electrode uh, and the clamp contains a test coil and it basically eliminates the effects of your parallel resistances so that the only resistance are, is the earth electrode under test so you don't have to disconnect the earthing conductor on that one and uh, the resulting level of accuracy they say is similar to that given by fall potential method so fall of potential method sorry that's the E1 method um, you know and you can use an instrument using two um, test coils and they, you know, work in a slightly different way, but achieve the same same thing. Um, it's effectively a number of earth electrodes within the uh, uh, installation, not just one electrode. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit different because of that. 
And again, in Guidance Note 3, I'm not going to dwell on this too much because, you know, we can kind of get bogged down with earth electrode testing. It is in there, and, um, you know, you do need to be aware of it, and that's kind of around page 60 onwards, chapter 2, if you want to go and have a little look on that one. But I want to get into some of the more uh, juicy aspects, and we will delve onwards. And kind of starting off with that, the final method of um, doing earth electrode measurement is by doing an earth fault loop impedance test. And... Um, it's recognised that the results may not be as accurate as if you use an actual earth electrode tester, but you are allowed to do it. And you need to remember that, again, for safety reasons, the installation has to be isolated from the supply before you disconnect any earth. So make sure that you, you're not taking the earth out of an energised system and leaving it without an earth connection. So make sure that you are isolated. And you would simply take a... Uh, measurement you would take using um, an earth fault loop impedance tester and you would check between the um, earth electrode and the line conductor and that would give you a value of impedance and whilst it's not as accurate as using an actual earth electrode tester it's an acceptable way of doing it and it's going to be reasonably close uh, certainly within most uh, domestic situations for example uh, and again that's that's the three methods and it kind of leads us on nicely to um, earth fault loop impedance testing um, which is one of the the first live tests you're going to be doing and it's one of those that kind of builds on the dead tests so um, it's fundamental before you carry out any earth fault loop impedances that the uh, initial verification process and your dead tests have been done so we need to again state that and uh, don't be jumping into this before you've carried out those dead tests. I know it's often tempting and common practice to do the old bang test and turn everything on and see if anything trips and jump straight to your ZS test. But in doing so, it's dangerous and um, you're not going to help yourself in the long run. Eventually, you will get called out, caught out and wish you never did it. So make sure you always do carry out those dead tests um, once you have finished your training. And don't just be learning this for the sake of passing AM2 and getting your uh, qualifications complete. This is something that you need to learn and then apply in your working life. So don't just jump straight out of the habit of doing things properly. And uh, yeah, we'll jump on with the, the air fault loop impedance testing now. So if we look at guidance note three, um, with to do with air fault loop impedance, and that's on page 66, there's two methods that you're allowed to use for verifying total earth fault loop impedance for a circuit. And you can either measure it, so you use a multifunction tester or an air fault loop impedance tester, and um, where it's safe to do so, record that measurement. Or you can do your measurement of big R1 plus big R2 that you would do during your dead continuity test, and add that to your measured ZE, so your earth fault loop impedance test. And it actually says in guidance note 3 that the latter, so that is the, the measurement of R1 and R2, and then the addition of your ZE is preferred, preferred when determining ZS for final circuits and distribution circuits. So it's actually stated in guidance note three. Um, measurement of ZS is on a live installation, uh, so you need to make sure that none of the bonding conductors or your air thing uh, is disconnected. It needs to all be connected because the installation is energized and to disconnect those would be dangerous. So don't be doing that. So if we're talking about the 
uh, value of ZS using the continuity method and adding in your ZE. Again, we've already gone through the dead test for continuity measurement, and you would simply carry out your ZE test um, at the origin of the installation. So, I mean, when you're doing that, again, you need to make sure that the installation is isolated because you're going to have to disconnect the main earth. So when you are um, carrying out your measurement of ZE, you need to make sure there's no parallel path through the bonding conductors. You are just wanting to know what the loop impedance through the line conductor and the earth conductor is. Um, so you don't have the installation energized. You disconnect the earthing conductor from the main earthing terminal and carry out a measurement to line. And that would give you your value for ZE. Um, so if you were to measure that value of ZE, then make sure before you re-energize the system that the earthing conductor is reconnected. I've seen lots of people over the years um, leave it out in their haste and turn things back on um, without realizing. So make sure you're thorough in your process. You know, when you're carrying out these tests, certainly when you're in the AM2 test center and then out in the day-to-day -day job afterwards because the last thing you want to be doing through the process of inspection and testing is introducing danger so you need to be really careful get into good habits and have a, a good um, chain of thought in your own mind of exactly what you're doing and exactly why you're doing it and if you're um, not confident that you um, are able to do that make sure you have somebody who's kind of mentoring and supervising you check over each stage um, with you don't just go off and start doing this on your own you know you need to make sure that you're safe and um, installations are kept safe as well so one of the other things actually that i will mention with um, ze you are allowed to obtain that value by inquiry so that's where you can ask the um, electricity distributor so your dno what the value of ze for that particular premises is and they should be able to tell you um, but it does say in guidance note three if it's to be relied upon a test must be made to ensure that the distributor's earth terminal is actually connected with earth using an earth fault loop impedance tester to verify that the intended means of earthing is present and of the expected value or a test lamp so it actually states that in guidance note three so if you are doing it by inquiry you've still got to actually check that it is connected to earth not just take it at its face value and um, apply no actual test process to even you know check that there is an earth connection so keep that in your mind as well so if you're taking an earth fault loop impedance test at a final circuit, for example, so with a with a socket circuit, it's quite straightforward to carry out these tests these days with um, multifunction test instrument because you get these nice handy leads that will connect into your test set. They're even color coded, and you can go and pop the the plug top into a socket outlet, and then hit that test button, and it will give you a value. And there's a few things to remember when you're carrying out that test, and one is the protective device that's on the circuit so if you've got an RCD in there for example you need to make sure that you're on the the no trip range um, the other thing to bear in mind is that if you have a, a twin socket outlet that you check both sides of that socket outlet because it is quite um, common to find a, a high resistance on one side to the other and that can be for a number of reasons it could be that somebody's had a three kilowatt heater plugged in one side for example and you know it's caused some deterioration or carbonized carbon on the pins within the uh, socket outlet itself so make sure you carry out that test at both sides it's good practice to do so and one of the other things is that when you're you're measuring your zs you need to be verifying that the result you get from it makes sense and it does reference that in in guidance note three that as the person carrying out the test you do need to put a bit of thought into that 
and that's kind of referencing Appendix A um, of Guidance Note 3, um, that the figures for your airflow fault loop impedance, if you have designer information, that they kind of correlate with that, um, and that your tabulated values in the wiring regs um, corrected for temperature, and you can use the uh, factor of 0 0.8, which is in Appendix A2, um, to, to do that. So what you're actually measuring needs to make sense. You need to actually make that check. Don't just write it down and move on, for example. So one of the places where it starts to get a little bit more complicated is when you look at testing um, at points on an installation where you have to do what would be termed as live working. And if you, I think it's in the on-site guide, it does actually give a, a, a cover of that where it says that it's allowable to carry out these tests whilst essentially working live because you know it's essential to verify that a system's safe for use and that's one of the things that you do have to to carry out so if you think for example on a lighting circuit you're going to have to open up the a pendant for example so you can get access to those terminations to carry out the measurements i know you can get those nice handy um, i think they're made by qtech and other manufacturers have them as well i've seen tis have some where you can insert them into a pendant and then you know you just have to release the pendant cover cap and, and put the probe onto the earth terminal so you're not actually inserting probes into the the um, the, the, the uh, ceiling rose itself which is a little bit safer um, so that's that's a good tool to get in your kit and it kind of reduces the risk of of live working but certainly when you've got you know ceiling down lights for example you're going to have to have access to those live parts and you need to have appropriate PPE and take that measurement in a safe way so make sure you are working safe and um, remembering that it is live working and you know while it's allowable based on um, the guidance and the fact that we've got to do that particular task if it can be avoided and it's safe to um, to do that then you know we're, we're allowed to work in that way so certainly when you're doing your periodic testing um, and an installation's already been verified with initial verification you know, it's not always essential that you carry out those ZS measurements at each point on an installation. Um, I can't ever think of a reason why you wouldn't do that on a socket circuit because you can do that without access to live parts. Um, but, you know, that's something to factor in and, and a lot of compliance and testing companies actually write that into their risk assessment and method statements that they don't uh, open up accessories with live parts in because of that reason. And it's um, a hard argument to fight against but that's kind of delving into an area that's away from anything you need to be worrying about just now but just to be aware of it so the next live test is to do with prospective fault current and it's similar but different to measurements of um, ZE and we'll cover why in the next um, little section so when we're talking about prospective fault current we're basically trying to obtain um, a value of current that could flow um, under a fault condition so it's the, the maximum amount of current that could flow. And one of the reasons we need to know that is so that we select our protective devices so they can withstand that. Because there's absolutely no point having protective devices there that are going to be kind of, you know, potentially blasted to smithereens and welded shut because of a surge in fault current that they can't deal with. So that's what we're measuring here. And if you look in Guidance Note 3 on page 68, it tells you um, the reasons why you do that and um, you know you need to have knowledge of the switch gear at the origin so you 
are familiar with a way of carrying out this test in a safe way and um, you know that because of the magnitude of prospective fault current at the origin it will decrease um, with an increase of distance downstream so that's basically saying if you've got quite a high prospective fault current at the origin as you get a, a reasonable distance into the installation that's going to start dropping away quite substantially if you are going through final circuits of um, a small CSA for example but if you've got large distribution circuits you know it's still going to be um, of, of quite a high order within the installation and that's just due to the resistance of the cabling so you know that's um, Ohm's law if you like um, so if we think about the measurement for prospective short circuit current you're essentially connecting in a similar way as you would for ZE but with a slightly different setup and there's a, there's a good reason for that so with your ZE measurement you would have your earthing conductor disconnected from all the parallel paths and that's because you just want to know the finite value of resistance through that path but when we're talking about prospective short circuit current we want all those parallel paths in place because they could potentially increase that value so if they've got a better path um, to earth than actually through the, the supplier's earth or um, main earthing terminal then it's going to increase that flow of current so you need to ensure that the um, protective bonding conductors and the main earthing conductors are all connected all your parallel paths are connected and um, that you carry out that test with those in place and again the test instruments you can use they, they're all set up differently some will have a, a two lead setup some have a three lead setup um, mine you know you can connect onto the line and the neutral and make a measurement and then you can connect onto the the line and earth and make a measurement and you take the highest of the two values um, but some of them you can connect onto um, all three and take that measurement in one go and when we've taken this measurement we need to be comparing it with the um, protective devices um, rating so I mean that's the primary reason for carrying out this test so the values obtained should be compared with the braking capacity of the appropriate protective device and um, you know there's there's a couple of ways you can approach this so in most cases your value of um, prospective fault current is going to be beneath um, 10ka so your circuit protective devices would largely be okay anyway but if for example the measured value of protective fault current appears to exceed the fault current rating um, of the protective device you know further consideration has to be given for current limiting effect for any upstream protective devices and the ability for the source of supply to deliver the indicated prospective fault current so it says here the maximum value of prospective fault current for an installation will be with the installation unloaded and the conductors at ambient temperature. So if we think back to um, my little industrial unit, for example, that is very, very close to the supply transformer, I had quite a high value of prospective fault current. And this installation isn't mine. It's not one we've done. It's just as we found it from the um, landlord. And you know, I, I, when I first saw it, I actually wondered why they'd set it up in that way, because we had the main supplier's fuses and then there's a switch fuse with some 63 amp um, BS 88 fuses in. And um, that's before the distribution board. So they're in a separate enclosure um, between the, the supplier's 
head and the distribution board. And there's still 10k breakers in the board. And that's because I was measuring when I was messing around. It's sort of around 10k on the prospective fault current. And I think the original designers and installers have gone for a belt and braces approach and put those BS88 fuses in because they can withstand a higher fault current. So they know that if there's a serious issue within the installation that they're going to break that um, quite easily and um, not going to have an issue because you know that that value can fluctuate day to day so if you're getting something that's sort of borderline to what the um, devices can withstand you need to factor that into what you're installing and again without dwelling on the differences between single phase and three phase installations they are a little bit different and i have referenced it in a video i've put onto youtube actually where i spoke about this in a bit more detail but essentially, if you've got a three-phase system, the prospective three-phase short circuit current is always going to be larger than a single-phase line to neutral or earth fault current. And if you think about it, that's just the nature of, of what you've got on the supply arrangements. Um, and, and again, if you are measuring your prospective fault current um, on a three-phase installation, you need to be doing that either with a multifunction tester or a test instrument that can carry out a test between phases so for example the test instrument I use in my video will do that and um, you know you can record the value otherwise you can go between um, a phase and neutral and your phase and earth and just double it as a rule of thumb and that is on the side of caution there is actually a calculation you can use that involves the square root of three and um, yeah we won't go into that in too much detail here because I think just on, on audio it's going to start confusing people. But if you reference back to some of my earlier YouTube videos, you'll find it in there. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will explain it in a, in a better way if you have the time to go and check it out. Um, it does say here where an instrument is rated for a higher voltage, a more accurate prospective fault current measurement for a three phase installation can be obtained by measuring the line to line fault current and dividing the measured result by 0 0.87, which is kind of referring back to what I was just saying there. While we talk about um, testing for earth fault loop impedance, there is actually a note in Guidance Note 3 to do with the accuracy of these things. So they become less accurate at low value impedance. So if you are quite close to a, a transformer, for example, especially when you're on the lower current range, such as 15 milliamps, they could be quite prone to significant errors um, and such errors can significantly affect the calculation of prospective fault current. So you need to factor that in as well. Uh, and you can get um, four wire earth fault loop impedance testers for if you are carrying out tests in situations like that. So for example, if you carry out a lot of um, tests where you're close up to supply transformers, your multifunction tester might not be the right instrument for that. So, you know, have that in your mind as well. But certainly when you're doing your AM2 and such, it's not going to be a factor. It's just something to be aware of. If you look in Guidance Note 3, it gives you the rated short circuit capacity for fuses and circuit breakers and such. And that kind of leads back onto what I was talking about before. So if we look at, um, you know, your, your general purpose fuse, so your BS88-2s. Uh, if you look at the bolted type, which is what I had in my unit, they can handle 80 ka at 400 volts so that's quite a a fault current um, if you've got the clipping ones so that's the g types they'll do 50 ka at 230 volts or 80 ka at 400 volts 
Um, but if you look at, for example, a circuit breaker, so a 60898, um, you would kind of be looking at either 6KA or 10KA usually. Um, you can get different variants, and it does actually say in Guidance Note 3 on page 71 where you get ICN and ICS. Um, and they kind of range from 1.5 to 25. Um, but generally speaking, if you're going in the wholesalers, you're going to be getting a 6KA, which you would use in domestic premises usually, and a 10KA, which you would be looking to use in uh, commercial premises. And again, that's just due to the different levels of uh, prospective fault current. Now, if we look at um, fuses, so these are your BS1361s, and you'll usually find these... Um, in you know your service suppliers fuses they often have 1361s in if you have a type 2 they'll handle 33ka and the type 1 16.5 um, it doesn't reference in guidance note 3 your bs3871s anymore they kind of give them as an m value so i won't talk about them too much but they, they are still in there and if you want to see how they used to be rated, you can check in a prior edition of the regulations. One of the more interesting uh, ones is to do with your BS3036s, and that's your fuse wire. A lot of new entrants to the industry get confused with this because you know it's not something that's really familiar with industry anymore, although these boards are still out there in their millions, I'm sure they are because we spend enough time changing them. But there's a few types of the semi-enclosed fuses, and they have the S1A category, S2A and S4A and basically the number relates to the short circuit capacity of the fuse wire. So your S2A is 2KA, your S4A is 4KA uh, and again once that wire is inserted into a, um, a fuse you're not really going to know what's in there to be fair. You're going to have to um, check when you're installing new wire after the fuse has blown that it that it meets the requirements but um, obviously once it's in it's in and you don't, you don't really know it's not got a label on it to check has it. While we're talking about the supply arrangements, some uh, DNOs might specify a high um, fault current value, perhaps up to 16KA, but you need to remember that this is rapidly reduced um, with the impedance of the supply cable. So if you think of how long some of the DNOs supply cables are, as soon as you start running through those, that's going to drop away quite substantially. And generally for domestic installations, a prospective fault current's unlikely to exceed 6KA. Um, so we need to be mindful of that. And again, if we look in um, IT Guidance Note 2, we can get a little bit more information on that as well. So there is other guidance around this. Um, but while we're talking about you know inspection and testing in Guidance Note 3, it is referenced. And it says here that where a service cutout containing a cartridge fuse to BS88-3, which is formerly uh, BS1361, Supplies a consumer unit which complies to BS5486-13 or BSEN60439-3 Annex ZA, then the short circuit capacity of the overcurrent protective device within the consumer units may be taken to be 16KA. So that's kind of telling you that they will withstand up to 16KA even if the labels on the devices say they don't. As a whole, it's accepted that they, they do meet that requirement and that's a bit of a sort of fudge because of what the the DNO states as what the um, you know prospective fault current and installation could be, and it does kind of lead on through guidance note three talking about that where it says about fault currents up to sixteen kA, and it kind of says that you know unless you're in London or a big city, 
the maximum fault current uh, for a 230 volt single phase supply up to 100 amps is unlikely to exceed 16 kA and the short circuit capacity of overcurrent protected devices within a consumer unit may be taken as 16 kA where the consumer unit complies with the relevant British standard and uh, the consumer unit is supplied through a type 2 fuse to BS1361-1971 rated at no more than 100 amp or a single uh, phase supply with a nominal voltage up to 250 volts. So again that's kind of giving you that get out with a, a consumer unit that meets the relevant British standards and a bog standard supply head into a domestic premises. And one final point to make about that is the recording of your prospective fault current. So with your EIC or your EICR you get a section for the nature of supply parameters where you do have to record the prospective fault current and the one you would record is the greater of either the short circuit current between your live conductors or the air fault current between your, your line conductors and the main airthink terminal. So just to, to have that in your mind. And again we've kind of hit the half an hour mark there and we're kind of through the um, earth fault loop impedance testing now and we're getting on to other things to do with phase sequencing and such and we'll pick up with that in the next episode. So I hope you found that kind of useful and again we're just referencing guidance number three as we go along and having a little discussion around um, some of the processes and the reasons why we're making those measurements and I hope it makes sense and I have got other episodes out on podcasts with some of the the guys where we discuss these things as well I've got videos over on my YouTube channel where I'm um, looking at some of the practical measurements of these things and, and again if you reference back to those later on you might find some of those helpful you've got the huge resource of GSH electrical you've got um, Craig O'Neill with his completely electrical channel there's Joe Robinson and um, all of the great content he's got as well with the eFix Apprentice Learning Hub. Um, you know, there's such a huge volume of resources where you can go off and delve into this in far more detail than I could ever give you. Um, but hopefully these little 30 minute bite-sized chunks are just maybe freshening up your, your mind and giving you a bit of insight into Guidance Note 3. And if you haven't got a copy and you're coming towards the end of your time, I highly recommend you get yourselves one so you can familiarize yourself with what's in there because um, you know this is the industry guidance document to inspection and testing. And uh, again, in the next part of the series, we'll finish off some of the live testing and, um, you know, that picks on some of the newer protective devices we've got as well with um, in the, the latest version of the regulations. And again, we can delve into kind of fault finding and some of the more practical applications of how we use these tests to help us when chasing down issues within an installation. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will catch you on the next one. Thank you very much for listening. Please um, leave a comment in the the podcasting, um, whatever you would call it, your podcasting listening service. Again, these aren't going out on YouTube, they're just audio version. That would be greatly appreciated, and if you could give it a bit of a share on social media somewhere, let your friends and colleagues know about it, that would be fantastic. Just so I know people are listening to these, and it's worthwhile keeping going. Thank you very much for listening. Catch you on the next one. <laughs>